very little can be redeemed from watching uh, Netflix shows. Um, but I, I have learned as we've gone through this uh, period of Sunday school together that it's really great to do a recap of what we saw in the last episode. And uh, it's also fun to to do a little bit of the, the, season, the season finale, so to speak. And so uh, this morning we'll begin by reminding ourselves what we've learned through uh, nine chapters now of the book of Amos. Recap some of the main things that we've observed about who our God is and what it is that he wants us to understand about himself through the study of the book of Amos. It's also um, helpful to know that as we dig into chapter 9, we also uh, saw a bit of this message in a, a sermon that um, we were able to, to do on Palm Sunday. So we looked at the kind of the bottom half of, of Amos 9 as a bit of a preview. Today we'll go through the entirety of chapter 9. But in light of that, understand God's great and precious promises across generations, and ultimately culminating in the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. So let's uh, begin in prayer and then recap a bit as we prepare to study this ninth and final chapter of the book of Amos. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We're grateful for your faithfulness. We're, we're grateful for your, you being a covenant-keeping God. We thank you, God, that you are not only just and not only righteous, but also merciful. And we thank you for that. We thank you that through the chapters of the book of Amos that we've looked at, we see that your character is unwavering. Though your people are, are sinful and rebellious, their hearts are hard, God, we thank you that you are forbearing, that your steadfast love endures forever. And we just uh, thank you that as your remnant people here today, we can and, and need to be reminded of your faithfulness. We just pray that that would produce in us repentance that would be evident to the world around us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the words of, of pages of Scripture this morning and all that we, we read, all that we study, and all that we, we recap. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As we begin the, uh, the ninth chapter of Amos, it's important to remember that the book began with two chapters being focused on the nations around the people of Israel. We saw those different nations and like Tyre and Sidon and Gaza, and we saw Edom and, and Ammon and these nations that God warned, that God rebuked for their sinfulness, and then we saw the the midsection of the book of Amos where we shifted to, to psalms and, and hymns and poems that warned Israel of the punishment that would come to them, that God would, would ultimately no longer relent, that his wrath would be poured out. And then the final portion, this third portion of Amos that we're, we're looking at, focuses on the, the outpouring of God's wrath, but ends with a, a bright spot in chapter 9. And uh, we praise God for that, that pattern that we see. We see a warning, and we see that the outpouring of God's judgment is imminent, but yet in that, his mercy is, is still more than sufficient. We saw last week four visions. The four visions, if you recall, are locusts and fire, and the Lord with a, a plumb line to measure the, and evaluate the injustice of the people of Israel, and ultimately that, that basket of summer fruit. In the first two visions, we saw that the, that the Lord relented, 
Amos the prophet asks God to forgive, asks God to cease, and in both cases, there's a relentance. And then, ultimately, God can no longer relent because of him being a holy and a just God. And what we'll see in today's message is also a a recapping, not only the the four visions, but also um, the kings that come to view. So I'd say three kings, but actually there's more than three kings in what we'll evaluate today. But I'd like to begin by reminding ourselves a little bit chronologically of what we see happening. So some of you may have done your homework, 1 Kings chapter 13. And 1 Kings chapter 13, if you read it, was focused on Jeroboam the first. Okay, so it's not the Jeroboam the second that we've been dealing with through the book of Amos, but the first Jeroboam. And there's a commonality between the two. And in both cases, there's a theme of, of the idolatry that took place at Bethel. We see that Jeroboam the first built this altar at Bethel to distract and, and cause a, a false worship for the northern house of Israel. And there was a prophetic message against that altar at Bethel. An unnamed prophet, we don't know his name, went up to Jeroboam the first and prophesied against the altar at Bethel and said that this altar would be destroyed and there will be bones of false prophets burned on this altar. And the prophet, if you paid attention to the details there, named King Josiah by name as the one who would be responsible for ultimately destroying that altar at Bethel. We saw Josiah and he he went and he destroyed that temple And from a a timeline standpoint, I want you to write down a couple of notes in in your margin. So Jeroboam I was the king of Israel as as the kingdom divided around 930 to 910 BC. Okay, so that's Jeroboam I. The Jeroboam II that we find in the book of Amos would have been king from 793 to 753. At the same time that Jeroboam II is the king of the northern tribes of Israel, Uzziah is the king of the southern kingdom. And his, his reign was roughly the same as that of, jo- um, of Jeroboam II. And then King Josiah, who we read about in 2 Kings chapter 23, would have been from 641 to 609. So as we have studied the book of Amos, the book of Amos began with a temporal marker. And this is a, a concept that we should always remember when approaching scripture. The first verse of Amos tells us that the ministry of Amos was during the reign of King jo- Jeroboam and King Josiah, I'm sorry, King Uzziah. So we know who these two kings are, right? And that's important because as we get into what the prophet Amos has been telling the people of Israel, all of that brings to mind for them the history, what's going on at the present in the time of Amos, and ultimately what's going to transpire in the future. So as we begin Amos chapter 9, verse 1, keep in mind what we've read about the altar at Bethel. Keep in mind also who the king Uzziah was. We'll look at uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26 just briefly to understand something that's, that's happening. But let's read the first verse of Amos chapter 9. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and on those who are left of them, and I will kill them with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. All of this brings to mind 
the idolatry and the hypocrisy that's happening in both kingdoms. We've got Jeroboam II, who's continuing to perpetuate this worship at, at Bethel. And we read that, that God speaks out against any false hope in this altar. In fact, Amos chapter 3, verse 14 says, I'll punish the altars of Bethel and the horns should be cut off and fall to the ground. Remember, you could go to the altar and if you grabbed hold of one of those four horns on the altar, you would have salvation. Well, Amos says, those horns of salvation are cut off from that altar. That altar will be destroyed. And ultimately, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, I won't read all of it, we talked about it on Palm Sunday a bit, but we have King Uzziah, the, the king of the southern nations, walking into the temple in Jerusalem and burning incense, even though that was a task resolved, reserved for the priests of the, of the descendants of Aaron. And when he did that, God struck him with leprosy. And the priests tried to dissuade him and warned him. He was angry with them. And according to, to Jewish tradition, the book of, uh, of the writer Josephus records that at the moment that Uzziah was struck with leprosy, there was also a great earthquake. And as we read through the book of Amos, we actually have mentioned at the beginning that this was two years before the earthquake transpired. So if we line that up with what Josephus tells us, that we know that during Amos' lifetime, Uzziah strolls into the temple in Jerusalem and is struck with leprosy for taking a position before God that was not his to take. So all of this meaning is tied up in what we see happening in these first verses of Amos chapter 9. We have this earthquake. We have Uzziah struck with leprosy. We have the temple, the, the false worship at both Jerusalem and in Bethel. And God speaks out against that. What Amos sees beside the altar is no king who's not in his right place, but he sees Yahweh. He sees the Lord beside the altar. And he says, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them upon the heads of the people. And all those who are left of them I will kill with the sword and not one of them shall flee away and not one of them shall escape. The commentary that I uh, have read calls to mind the vision of Samson and how he brings down the house. These, the pillars, the colonies, the, the threshold would be the top and the capitals, the capitals the top, the thresholds the bottom. The whole house comes down. And this is the picture that Amos begins the ninth chapter with. Looking at verses two and three, what we see here is a remarkable picture of how God's judgment is inescapable. This was probably sung to the, uh, a tune of a song that might have been known in that day. And it says, If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them, search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And verse 4 says, And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them, not for evil and not for good. The uh, commentary also makes a remarkable connection to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. No doubt, and I mentioned this earlier, that, that Paul would have been a, a student of the book of Amos. He would have known what this prophet wrote to the people of Israel. 
He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? He was well studied in what God said through his prophets, through his messengers. So what we see in in Amos chapter 9 is there's nowhere you can go to escape the wrath of God. You can go to Carmel, the heights of Carmel, right, where the prophets of Baal were dealt with in the time of Elijah. You could hide in a cave in the cleft of the rock, as Elijah did. He'll find you there. You can go to the the depths of, of Sheol or the depths of the sea, and he'll find you there. There is no thought in the heart of man that can be hidden from him. There is no place to go on that day, right, that can be a place of escape. But Paul says, just as that is true, as God brings about repentance and salvation in the lives of his remnant people, there's no place you can go that you are outside of the reach of God's love. Romans 8, beginning at verse 31, a text we know well. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That same type of imagery that Amos uses to show how God's wrath knows no limits and bringing each to account is attributed to Christ who will go to any length to bring his elect to salvation and to preserve them. Praise God for that. A hopeful echo from Paul back to the prophet Amos. I should mention, I think I skipped over the title slide, but if you want to write down the three R's for today's uh, title of the message, it would be relenting, repenting, and restoring. So relenting, repenting, and restoring. So those are the three R's we'll look for. I'll add a fourth one, just for good measure, and that's remnant. Watch for that word as we look at the text as well. The tail end of verse 4, Amos does something very interesting with a play on words. If you notice, as God's wrath is explained, it says, And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. For I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. Remember last message? Love evil, love good, hate evil, right? And then he flips it around, hate evil, seek good, right? And now the prophet Amos does the same thing and explains how God will be acting towards his people, not for their benefit, but for their their punishment. Verses five and six continue that theme, but like the text we read in the book of Job, we see God as creator God in view. It says, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. All of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens 
and found his vault on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. The Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his name. And it talks about how he calls the waters of the sea and makes it rain. Remember, we've seen this theme of drought throughout the, the curses that God applies to his disobedient people, Israel. Obey, or it's going to stop raining. Listen, or there will be a famine. And not just the famine of bread, but a famine of hearing my word. Verses 7 and 8 deal with the, the remnant of the people of Israel and the, God's treatment of his covenant people of Israel. Look what God is doing here. He's using a couple of different questions to call into mind different historical events that the people of Israel would have understood. Look what he says. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kur? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So the rhetorical questions are important to understand because Remember we talked about how the, the oldest child thinks they get special treatment, they get off the hook because they're the oldest child? Guess what? Not the case. This is a level playing field. This God of justice and holiness and righteousness that we've seen throughout Amos, he says, look, I brought other people into captivity and out of captivity. He makes reference to the Syrians and the Cushites, which would have been like the people of, of Ethiopia that were also taken into Egyptian slavery. Or the Philistines being taken into captivity, or the Syrians being taken into and out of captivity. He's saying, hey, you think you're all that, but guess what? I'm going to deal with you as I see you. And how do I see you? I see you as a sinful kingdom. This is a, a unique term. It's only seen here in all of scripture where God describes his people Israel with that specific terminology. You're a sinful kingdom, a sinful divided kingdom. The northern kingdom about to be hauled off by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah not far behind. Also about to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. But yet, despite them being a sinful kingdom, their restoration is ultimately at the heart of why he's relenting. Now again, we wrote down the dates of the kings. We're not trying to win Bible trivia here. We're trying to understand how God's perfect plan is in place. As we look at prophetic messages, it's not always one of predictive prophecy, but what's really neat is in this, we do see predictive prophecy. So we've got Jeroboam the first back at 931, right? And we've got King Josiah in 641 to 609. And during the reign of Josiah, the young eight-year-old king finds the book of the law. He implements a Passover that is accepted by the Lord, and he destroys the altar at Bethel. And that means roughly 300 years have passed since 1 Kings 13, Jeroboam I, and Josiah. And God's word faithfully comes to pass. Likewise, from where we're at now with Amos, Sorry this is small, but um, we can uh, probably make it available at another time if you don't have it in your ESV study Bible. But what we can see here is there's probably about 100 years from Amos to Josiah. So in this span of time, we see that God is relenting. He's holding back in such a way that there would be a repentance. 
But moreover, the Old Testament narrative continues to under, help us understand how God works in relenting to bring about a repentance in his people. Look at verse 8 again of Amos chapter 9. He says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sin sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. I'd like to jump ahead a couple of hundred years, specifically around the, the 500 BC era. Okay? So, northern kingdom of Israel taken off with fish hooks in their mouth to Assyria. Then, in 586 BC, during the, the ministry of Jeremiah, the people of Judah are taken off into captivity in Babylon. They're there for 70 years, which, by the way, God told them very specifically, you'll be in captivity for how many years? 70, right? And then we have the ministry of, of two men that we'll look at today, Zechariah and Ezra. Now, what's significant about, about these two men in relation to this text? How does it connect to Amos chapter 9? You'll recall the, the Palm Sunday message was the Lord, his temple, and his people. Well, the temple was destroyed. The altar at Bethel is destroyed. That was integral for the restoration of the relationship between God and his people. The altar was necessary for, the, for a sacrifice of, of atonement. That temple was necessary for a rightful worship of God. So the exiles who are in Babylon naturally cry by the, the rivers of Babylon. They long for a restoration with God. And God acts on their behalf. Why? Because he promised that he would. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Go with me to the, the book of Ezra. We'll look real briefly at chapter 6. And then move on from there. If you haven't studied the book of Ezra, amazing book of how God brings his people back out of captivity. If we skim read chapter 6, it's worth mentioning that we have a couple more kings here. We've learned some kings this morning. We've got King Darius, who's a Persian king. And King Darius is informed that his predecessor, King Artaxerxes, stopped the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And so King Darius goes and he, he digs out the Babylonian archives and he finds the decree of Cyrus. And look what, he, look what he says. We'll look at this briefly. Then Darius, the king, made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. In the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record in the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits. And its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And he goes on to, to recap this, this decree of Cyrus, that would allow the people to leave captivity and go back to 
the land that God had promised them. And to take money out of the treasury of Babylon and curiously enough, pay Sire, uh, Tyre and Sidon, those nations that God judged, to buy lumber for the reconstruction of the temple. How amazing is that? Israel's enemies tore it down, and now Israel's enemies are being used by God to allow it to be rebuilt again. This is how God is, is faithful to his people. The, verse 12 of chapter 6 says, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there and overthrow any king or people who shall put a, out a hand to alter this or to destroy the house of God that is in Jerusalem, I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Again, Persian king mandating the promised restoration that we see here in the book of Amos. Now, before we go on in, in Ezra, we're going to look at one more text in the, in the passage in Ezra. I want to recap verses 11 and 12. Amos 9, 11 and 12 say, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord God who does this. Now this is a, an amazing prophecy that, that very clearly has a double meaning, right? Ultimately, we, we read and we understood that the booth of David, that, that tabernacle where a rightful worship of God was to take place, points us to Jesus Christ. We understand that that ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, the descendant of David, through whom right sacrifice is made, right worship is made, and complete restoration takes place. But there's also a shorter-term prophecy. The remarkable thing about how God works through his, his prophets, there is also a nearer-term prophecy, and, and that is pointing to the reconstruction under Zerubbabel in the days of Ezra and of Zechariah of that, that temple. So let's look at Ezra chapter 7, we'll, I'll just give you a quick summary of that. Ezra chapter 7, Ezra goes through and gives a recap of all the ways that the people of Israel have been punished. There are verses in here that talk about how they were unfaithful to the Lord and they were punished. There are texts in here about how he makes their hard, their hard hearts as they were so that they would be punished and that God would no longer relent. And then ultimately, throughout the chapter 8, we see the message begin to, to shift and we see this focus of God restoring his remnant people. They've come out of captivity and they've, they've come back. And I want to show you at chapter 9 of the book of Ezra, starting at verse 6, we see that the people of Israel have been brought out. They've been restored, just like God would promise. And they begin to reestablish themselves in Jerusalem, and they start to intermarry with Canaanite women again. Again, right? That was the whole thing that got them carted off to Assyria and Babylon in the first place. And that's a strong warning to us. If we have been called out of sin, we have no business going back to it again. If we're God's remnant people, we ought to be reminding ourselves constantly of how it is that we're called to kill the old man, to kill the flesh, to flee from that which we've been rescued. 
We weren't bought by perishing things, right? But by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at what Ezra does as he calls out the people of Israel. They've been given a place to go to temple again. It pales in comparison to Solomon's temple, albeit. But there's been a restoration. And in the midst of them being restored as a remnant people, they need to be reminded of God relenting. Let's look at verse 6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. For the days of our, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have, been, had been, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem." And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the Lord, the land that you are entering to take possession of it, is, it is a land impure with the impurity of the people of the lands. And with their abominations, they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither their daughters for your sons, neither seek their peace nor prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us a remnant such as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, who, you who are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. What a remarkable prayer from the priest Ezra. He's recognizing full well that they've been given yet another chance to come back to the holy place to worship God again, and yet they need to be reminded not to return to their pattern of sin. For this reason, we can see that what Amos is pointing to is only a partial fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment of this restoration, of this saving of a remnant people, happens through Christ Jesus. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The next portion that I'd like for us to look at begins um, in verse 13 of Amos chapter 9. We see a, an even brighter promise of, of restoration. We've been reminded how God relented. He held back 300 years from Jeroboam's altar at Bethel to Josiah destroying that altar. We see the relenting of, of Babylon in 586 period of the 70 years in exile and God delivering them back to their, to their land. We see that. And then we see this, this great and precious promise, again with a double meaning, 
right? Pointing to a, a near term and a long term. But look what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet with wine and all of the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What an amazing promise that must have been to the people in exile. But you know what? The people in Amos' day, they didn't understand what all of this was about. They were in their land. They had their own vineyards. They had their own prosperity. Which is why God gives them the entire message of things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. The prophet Zechariah, a book full of, of things uh, and prophecies, perhaps harder to understand than what we've seen in the book of Amos. That's, uh, we have to graduate to that one. <laughs> but we'll go uh, take a look at Zechariah chapter 8. We can see this connection because Amos written a couple hundred years before Zechariah and Ezra. Ezra and Zechariah were contemporaries. Show us how God's faithful word came to pass. Uh, chapter 7 of Zechariah, verse 1, gives us a temporal marker. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And then that chapter goes through, and similar to what we see in, in Ezra, there's a recounting of how God had to punish them. This had to come to pass because God is just. God is a, God, a covenant-keeping God, and he gave the conditions of the covenant. You obey, blessings. You disobey, curses. Ezra takes them through that whole thing and explains to them why it is that they found themselves in exile and why it is they find themselves now back in Jerusalem to a, a Jerusalem full of challenges, full of neighboring nations and pressures and all of these things, yet they're there because God ordained it. Skip ahead to Zechariah chapter 8. And we see a promise of God restoring his remnant. Starting at verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of, of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of these people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing the words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present, on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, 
Neither was there any safety from foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of the people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause a remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Israel, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your house against one another and love no false oath. For these are the things that I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. What an amazing response to what we see in the book of Amos. We see Amos and this message over and over again of of destruction. God will no longer relent. But yet, God worked in the heart of his people a repentance. Generations later, while in Babylon, God used people like Jeremiah and like Ezra and like Nehemiah and like Zechariah to restore those people to himself, to bring them back. And what we just read in that amazing text of Zechariah 8, we see responses to things that we directly learned about, right? What does he say? Justice in the gates, right? Judgments that are true. Make those happen in the gates. He says, everyone's going to drink wine from their own vineyards. We just saw in Amos that, that this was promised. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. But you know what's more remarkable? And this is a text we looked at together and, and it warrants looking at again. This message of repentance, this message of God relenting and bringing about restoration includes a lot of people who are not of Israel. We see it. Thus says the Lord, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. We see God reestablishing the place of Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah. And people would have marveled at that, right? But what's more remarkable is how through the prophet Amos, we see that God's message of warning and repentance it's for those other nations. The gospel is, is not just for the Jew, it's, it's for the Gentile. For that reason, one of the, the most significant references to the book of Amos, we find in Acts chapter 15. I'd like to look at that with you. Yet again, this is the Jerusalem Council. 
we've got some debate between those who are Jewish Christ followers and wanting to know what to do with those who are from the nations. What do we do with all these other people that, that aren't Jews? They're not circumcised. They're not um, followers of all the law of Moses. What are we supposed to do with them? And look how God uses the words of the prophet Amos to make it crystal clear. It says, beginning at, at verse 5 of Acts 15, But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on, their, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek my name, and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Remarkable. Simeon understood it. James understood it. Paul understood it. Barnabas understands it. And we have that clarity. God's new covenant people, not made up by any racial or genealogical roots. It's through faith in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't need an altar. That's why we don't need a temple. That's why we don't need a Passover. Jesus is all of those things. He is our prophet. He is our king. He's our temple. He's our Passover. He's our savior. He is all of those things. Paul says it again a couple of chapters later in his discourse at Mars Hill. He explains how the gospel now operates in our day. At the end of his discourse where he explains the, the unknown God, he explains to those Gentiles who are listening in verse 30 of Acts 17, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Like he's relented to this point, right? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What a great summary of the gospel right there. It's not just for the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. It's not just for those pagan nations around Israel. It's not just for the day of Amos or the day of Ezra. It's for our day. It's for us as his new covenant people to, to understand that God in his forbearance has waited. And now he gives the command to do what? To repent, to turn from him. And like Ezra prayed, you've been called out of that. He's been gracious. He's given us a, a, a reprieve. Don't go back to that sin. As we 
conclude our, our study of, of Amos, I want to recap a couple of key verses that we've looked at through this text because uh, we tend to forget quickly. Six months from now, we not, might not remember anything about the book of Amos. I hope that's not the case. I pray that's not the case, but it's probably the case. So that's why we repeat, right? So I want to write down a couple of verses in here to help you understand what we've learned about God's character and to help you articulate to others why we would even bother to read this minor prophet and why he has such major relevance. The first verse is from Amos's contemporary, the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. Noteworthy that this is chapter 55. Chapter 56 talks all about how God's salvation is for the foreigner, for the Gentile, for the one in the midst of Israel. But, but what is Isaiah 55 6 and 7 tell us. This is key to understanding who God is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That ties in perfectly to the message of Amos. God used these two men around the same time to prophesy to two different kingdoms with the same message. One God one message, repent while he's relenting. So that's the first verse to remember. The second one comes from the prophet Ezekiel. And this helps us understand God's character and to give a rebuttal to the world around us that says, oh, I believe in the God of the, the New Testament, but not the God of the Old Testament, right? And, and here's what we see. Verse 23, and, and similarly, this is repeated elsewhere in, in the chapter. It says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And again, verse 32 of the same chapter, Ezekiel 18. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. That's the heart of our covenant-keeping God. Fair warning. Another verse for you to keep in mind as you study the book of Amos or really any other prophet is that ultimately, each prophet was inadequate. Each prophet was given a message by God, but they were sinners saved by grace. The two prophets that went up to talk to Jeroboam, right? The, the first one delivered his message. He was told not to go eat at the other prophet's house on the way back. What did he do? He disobeyed. And so their bones were buried together. But guess what? God prepared all the way for the perfect prophet, his son, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1.1 is one that we should always keep in view when we study scripture and study the prophet specifically. It's one we all know well. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Maybe hundreds of years between Amos and Zechariah. But guess what? The message is the same. The messenger equally inadequate. And so the God-man came himself to fulfill what all of these prophets had pointed to. And ultimately, the message that we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus Christ came to seek the lost and to save them. We praise God for that. We recognize that as we look at these prophets and these kings and these altars and these temples, that Christ was the fulfillment of all of those. Those all pointed to him. There is no mandate in here for Christians to rebuild the temple. 
There's no mandate in here for us to celebrate the Passover because Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. So I, I leave you with the fervent desire for you to have a hunger to study more of the major and the minor prophets and to understand how all of this has its perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ and to celebrate the fact that God is relenting and that God is calling us to repentance and that ultimately everything has its final amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's conclude in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the, the unity and the infallibility of Scripture. We thank you that throughout each page of, of Scripture, there are things that might confound us. There are things that might offend us. There are things that might be hard for us to understand. But yet, with diligent study and the equipping uniquely through your Holy Spirit, Lord God, we can know your heart. We can understand your, your plan of salvation and your invitation to come to the feet of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would, as a body of believers, hunger for that, that we would hunger for communion with you, that we would hunger for a knowledge of your scripture and more than a knowledge, also an application. May we be, uh, as we see a, a remnant people called out of sin and reticent to walk back to it, keep us from, from going back to those patterns from which we've been called. God, we thank you for the, the way that all of Scripture has its final yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we just pray that we would see that in, in every Scripture that we read today, in every hymn that we sing today, in every conversation that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we preach the message of repentance to a world around us who doesn't know you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.